0: On Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. You don't have to take my word for it, but after eight years at UMBC, I've come to realize that it's a pretty special place. We're innovative, we produce high-impact research, and our model of inclusive excellence is one that universities around the world are currently trying to adopt. So when we put together a conference, you know it's going to be a big deal. That's exactly what happened in May at UMBC, when the Africana Studies Department hosted its biennial international conference. This year's theme was African Women, Civil Wars, and Peacebuilding, and it brought together scholars and visiting political dignitaries from a variety of countries and institutions of higher learning around the world. The conference was a big success, thanks in large part to the work of Dr. Gloria Chuku, professor and chair of UMBC's Africana Studies Department. Dr. Chuku is the author of several notable books on African history and culture and gender studies, among other subjects, and serves on the governing bodies of the UMBC Language, Literacy, and Culture PhD program, the Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies department, and the Global Studies program. Dr. Chuku's expertise in these fields allowed her to facilitate a conference that dealt with a variety of critical topics. The conference benefited from presentations by several notable scholars and students of African politics and culture, as well as a celebration of African food, music, and culture that I was very sad to miss. But I was able to make it to a small part of this two-day conference, just in time to hear Dr. Chuku's opening remarks, and to hear one of the two keynote addresses. The rebroadcast we're about to hear features the work of Dr. Eileen Marie Tripp, Villas Research Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Tripp's research is focused on gender and women and politics, women's movements in Africa, transnational feminism, African politics, with particular reference to Uganda and Tanzania, autocracies in Africa, and on the informal economy in Africa. Her presentation is entitled Women and Peacebuilding in Africa, New Challenges and Possibilities. I was fascinated to learn about this subject, especially because it is so far from my own knowledge base, and maybe shamefully so given that Dr. Tripp and I are both political scientists, nevertheless working in quite different parts of a broad and diverse discipline. And so let's listen in, first to some of Dr. Chuku's remarks, and then we'll hear Dr. Tripp's address. I am here on May 17th, 2023, to listen to some really incredible presentations. But Dr. Gloria Chuku, who is the chair of our Africana Studies program, um, is leading this event, and it promises to be a really incredible opportunity to learn from a variety of different researchers, stakeholders, and UMBC students as well uh, about this really important topic. And um, so this is billed as an international conference highlighting the complex and diverse experiences of African women in pre-war, wartime, and post-war societies. I'm really excited to jump into this conference and to learn uh, about what's happening, and uh, especially the role of women in the peace-building process. So um, let's uh, take a listen. We're about to hear from our keynote speaker, uh, and then we're gonna get a chance to talk to some of these awesome uh, enterprising students here at UMBC. Hello,
1: hello, can you get seated? Yes, we are, we are, we are continuing. Please look at the program. <laughs> we are starting the opening ceremony. I want to acknowledge uh, the policy makers, the parliamentarians. I hope that we take a lot of message, powerful message from the conference back to Kenya, at least. Help to influence policies in Kenya and also in South Sudan. Those leaders, political leaders, have to go home and help in the reconstruction. At this time, I'm inviting Dr. Carl Stein uh, to give his uh, opening remarks and declare this conference open. We've been (laughs) acting unofficially. very much for that very kind introduction. Um, and thank you, Professor Chuku, for inviting me to this, uh, this event. Uh, and also to um, Kathleen Browning for helping organize Get Me Here. Um, so um, women in Africa have influenced domestic and global policies and practices around peace building in important ways. In spite of valiant efforts to be included in peace building, women are still included, excluded rather, <laughs> from formal peace processes from the negotiating table, from post-conflict governance structures, and transitional justice processes. They are all too often relegated to the margins, to informal grassroots activities, which I will also argue are important. Um, But the failure to recognize uh, women's many contributions to peace building comes at a great cost to the pursuit of peace. And so my talk today asks, what is at stake in the continued exclusions of women from peace building. Most of the academic literature on wi- women, peace, and security has problematized the gendered nature of the way in which war and security is understood. In the area of peace building, it has engaged in critiques of international norms and practices regarding international treaties and peacekeeping efforts. However, little attention has been paid to what women themselves are actually doing on the ground to build peace, um, and especially these informal strategies uh, and women's efforts to fight exclusion and peace building. There's also another literature on peace building that's more general, and it similarly virtually ignored the role of women in in peace building. Few look at women's peace building activities and their demands, even though, as I hope to show, These activities have been quite extensive and serve as a tremendous resource potentially for national peace building efforts. Even the large literature on local level, indigenous and informal peace building strategies largely still ignores the role of women. So if you look, maybe we start with uh, some definitions here, but um, if you look at some of the conventional definitions of peace building. Um, They see it as involving measures aimed at reducing the risk of returning to conflict by strengthening national capacity for conflict management and laying the foundation for a durable process uh, of peace and development. Uh, It's included support for conflict prevention through the protection of civilians, um, use of diplomacy, negotiations and community strategies, uh, external interventions supported by the UN or regional peacekeepers. Um, DDR programs, that's disarmament, demobilization and reintegration programs and security sector reforms. Uh, And finally, there's been uh, peace building includes uh, transitional justice mechanisms that focus on inclusive dialogue, reconciliation and truth processes, as well as the strengthening of the rule of law. And while these are important measures, they're also very state-centric. Uh, These strategies have focused almost exclusively on formal state building and technocratic solutions. Um, The professionalization of personnel, standardization of operating procedures, and honing the best practices but focused on the state. Um, These types of strategies are often valorized at the expense of grassroots activities carried out by women, and so much of the focus still remains on these formal and national processes. And again, I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but just that the focus is only on those kinds of activities. And so what I'll talk about today is um, how Africa has been actually a leader in many areas in the the whole field of women, peace, and security. But I'll also talk about the cost of the continued exclusions of women from other key areas. I'll talk about how war is gendered, but also how peace building is gendered. Um, the importance of women's informal peace-building uh, and I'll give some examples from around Africa and what some of the characteristics of this mobilization are. Um, and then I'll finally I may, may make a few comments about some of the international approaches to peace-building and, and um, some of the dilemmas that they pose. So African women have been global leaders in influencing policy around peace-building and the most important of which has been the involvement in the passage of the U.N. Security Council Resolution 1325. Uh, women's organizations met in Windhoek, Namibia in 2000, and they drafted a document that then became the basis for this resolution. Um, Namibia was at the time on the Security Council, the U.N. Security Council. And the resolution requires women to be included in all peacemaking and peace-building activities and recognizes their importance in peace negotiations, humanitarian activities, peacekeeping operations, and post-conflict peace building governance. When Namibia brought the resolution to the floor, there was a lot of pushback. Um, Ambassador Selma ashipala Musavi, who was Namibia's Deputy um, Permanent Representative to the UN at the time, um, she was in the thick of these negotiations. And she recalled the reaction in the UN Security Council at the time. Um, following the introduction of the theme of Women, Peace, and Security, what followed then was a minute of silence, followed by a mix of laughter, plain astonishment, accompanied by sophisticated ridicule. The feeling was that the topic of Women, Peace, and Security had no place in the UN Security Council, but should be discussed by the Third Committee of the UN General Assembly. However, due to our insistence and push from civil society organizations and other member states in our camp, the Security Council eventually deliberated on the topic and the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 was adopted and the rest is history. So she persevered. Uh, many of the changes in thinking about gender-based violence globally also can come out of African experiences with the conflict, um, as um, Joella Lee pointed out this morning. The International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, their judgment against former Rwandese mayor, Jean-Paul Akayesu in 1988 for his role in the Rwandan genocide of 1984, 1994, sorry, helped to fundamentally transform existing norms regarding gender violence, not only within Africa, but globally. For the first time, rape and sexual violence were explicitly recognized as an act of genocide and a crime against humanity. Two of the three judges in this case, I should point out, were from Africa: um, Judge Kama from Senegal and Nava Pile from South Africa, who, who is a well-known uh, women's rights activist in South Africa. Peace-building norms and practices have also been shaped by other African women leaders, and I can't mention all of them, obviously, but just to point just, just to point a, a few out. Um, uh, Fumzile Lambo the, the former executive director of UN Women from 2013 to 21. Um, under her leadership of UN Women, um, they worked to increase women's participation in peacekeeping operations. Prima Patton is a Mauritian-British barrister, women's rights activist, and UN official who currently serves as the UN Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict. Zainab Bangura has been relentless in her advocacy for conflict resolution and reconciliation and human rights in the UN system. And she was most recently um, also special representative of the Secretary General on sexual violence in conflict um, and had begun her career uh, most famously in the UN mission in Liberia, where she was in charge of the um, management of the largest civilian component of the mission. I'm sure many, most of you know um, Lema Bowie and uh, pre- former president Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia. Um, Bowie was the Liberian peace activist that was respo- who was responsible for leading a women's nonviolent peace movement, um, the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace that helped bring an end to the Second Liberian Civil War in 2003. And she and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf mobilized women to bring about peace in Liberia. And uh, after that, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was, elected the first, was the first elected woman president in Africa and served from 2006 to 2018. Um, Gbowee Sirleaf and Tawakul Karman from Yemen were awarded the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize for their nonviolent struggle for the safety of women and women's rights to participate in peace building work. And like I said, I can go on, but just to give you a sense you know, that there's, there's there are all these prominent women who have played these major roles in the, on the global scene. Uh, in terms of, you know, now we're 23 years at, away from the passage of UN Security Council Resolution 1325, and there's widespread recognition that although some gains have been made, there's still a long way to go to fully implement this resolution. Um, This has has particular bearing in Africa because some of the deadliest conflicts can be found on the continent in the Sahel, in Ethiopia, South Sudan, Somalia, and northern Nigeria. Nevertheless, as a result of um, 1325, Africa is a leader when it comes to women's rights provisions in peace agreements. Um, References to women's rights tripled um, after the year 2000, after the resolution was passed Um, uh, up to 34%, and it more than doubled in all comprehensive peace agreements, up to 78%. Uh, And this then helped set the stage for later incorporation of women's rights in constitutions and legislation, as well as women's presence in key um, governmental, legislative, and transitional institutions. Uh, Women's rights uh, have been included in more peace agreements in Africa than anywhere else in the world. Proportionately. So there are 30% in Africa compared to 16% in the rest of the world. If you look at the kinds of uh, agreement, the the kinds of women's rights provisions that are being included in these peace um, accords, it gives you a sense of what the priorities are for women uh, in Africa just overall in general. So after, after um, the general kind of institutional concerns that have to do with implementing women's rights, the majority of the substantive women's rights provisions um, relate to political participation, one. Um, the second area that's most important has to do with development and the need for women to acquire the means to support their households as a result of disruptions of conflict. And the third area of importance relates to violence against women. Um, another common concern that was heightened by conflict. One of the major demands of women in most post-conflict contexts has been for a role in governance, like I just pointed out in the Peace Accords. The countries with the highest levels of representation for women in parliaments, um, the countries that have the most women in cabinets and the local government are post-conflict countries. And this is not just countries with little conflicts, these are major countries with major conflicts. So as was pointed out this morning by um, Joella Lee, Rwanda, which experienced major genocide and conflict in 1994, you find that women hold 61% of the legislative seats, which, as we said, was the highest rate in the world. It's also no accident that um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was elected after years of conflict in Liberia and became a um, head of state, while Catherine Sambapanza was elected interim president of the Central African Republic in the middle of a bloody civil war or that Ethiopia gained um, a woman president in 2018 after years of instability and conflict. And all of them have been strong advocates of women's rights. Uh, if you look at the countries in Africa that have the highest rate of women, um, or with 50% women in the, in the cabinet, they're all post-conflict countries. Um, you know, Ethiopia and Rwanda, we've mentioned before. Uh, and so if you look overall, the countries that have um, that our post-conflict countries have doubled the rates of representation um, for women in the parliament uh, compared with non-post-conflict countries. And you can see here in this, in this chart, or in this figure, um, the, you know, the, the differences between the, the blue line are, the, are those countries that have come out of major conflict. Um, the red line is countries that have had no conflict the green line is those that have had <coughs> limited conflict. And the purple line is those that have ongoing conflict. So you can see that you know there's a big difference with those that have come out of major conflict when it comes to women's representation. And these um, developments are tied to social transformations that took place during the war. Um, the decline of conflict especially after the mid-1990s, that's when it kind of took off, and, and, and after 2000, even more so. New institutions were established in which women could assert their interests. Um, the peacekeeping negotiations sometimes allowed women to assert their demands. Uh, women's organizations influenced constitution-making processes and were able to include more women-friendly pro- provisions um, than countries that revised their constitutions but had not gone through conflict. Um, women's rights activists also saw that electoral rules were amended in ways that supported their goals. Um, And so you know one has to then, so then you know the question is what accounts for these trends? Um, Part of it has to do with changes in political elites that occurred after a conflict. Um, It also had to do with disruptions in gender relations and norms um, during conflict. Um, Also Women's movements and women's organizations took advantage of changing opportunity mm-hmm. structures during conflict. So they, they were able to take advantage of the mm-hmm. peace uh, agreements or constitutions or electoral reforms. And then in the background, you have changes in international norms. So the UN became much more active <laughs> in these issues. And the UN, so you saw much more of a presence of UN Unifem initially and then UN women that inserted themselves into these processes. Uh, and, and influenced some of the, the, the changes that took place both at the governmental level but also you know, women's movements. Let me just grab some water here. There are still many challenges. Um, so in terms of um, women, women's representation and peace, peace negotiations, the numbers are still very low, uh, even after 1325. And in fact, there's been very, very little change in women's engagement in this area. Women still make up only 14% of the negotiators, 6% of the mediators, 6% of the signatories in major peace processes. Um, only three women have served as chief me- mediators in international, at the international level. Um, and when women are brought in onto delegations, it's often as a result of advocacy on the part of UN women. Sometimes women play a role behind the scenes, um, as Betty Bigombe did both during and um, before the Juba peace talks in 2006 um, with, the, with the Lord's Resistance Army in, in northern Uganda. But she did so at her own expense. Mm-hmm. So women don't have a significant formal roles in peace talks. Um, they've also had difficulty getting consultative access to negotiations, which would give them some kind of formal mechanism to influence the proceedings. When it comes to um, military personnel on the ground, women make up 25% of them and 11% of the, mil- of the police personnel. And I think that the point here is that not, things just haven't changed a whole lot in these areas. Yet, we know from research that um, if you include civil society actors and women's organizations, um, the risk of peace failing is reduced by 64%. And this is regardless of if it's a democracy or a hybrid regime or authoritarian regime. Um, it, it, the, the, the end result is quite dramatic. And uh, another, this was, so this was from a study by Desiree Nielsen. Um, another study by Krauss, Krauss and Branford found that peace agreements that had women who were signatories were much more likely to have um, durable peace and a higher rate of implementation of the peace agreement. Uh, so you know, th- th- it makes a difference if women are at the table. Uh, so now I'll turn a little bit to the literature on, on peace building. Um, there's been considerable work on the gendering of war, um, but not so much on the gendering of peace building. Um, building on the work of Judith Butler, Laura Shepherd argues that changing and dynamic understandings of gender are reproduced and reified and reconstituted through violence and insecurity. Um, Gender is a power relationship, and therefore, it's implicated in violence, which is gendered. Um, Gender is a way of ordering society, and so violence itself recreates gender relations in a dynamic way. Um, Gender myths help maintain that hierarchy in ordering society. Culture and history also influence how gender is performed and reproduced and constituted through violence over time. Feminist security scholars have looked at the relationship between masculinity and war, and they point out that men are reg- often regarded as fighters, um, and when they are seen as peacemakers, it's often as protectors of the vulnerable women. Um, and this is amply uh, ev- evident in UN documents, studies of UN documents. However, in many contexts, women also are fighters. Um, in Sierra Leone and in, in Liberia, I mean, the numbers vary, but they're up to perhaps 20 percent of the fighters were women. And yet, in these same conflicts, um, and women were peacemakers also, but um, but they were not just pe- peacemakers. There were also women who were fighters. At the, by the same token, men were also peacemakers. Um, they were also victims. So, um, uh, you know, these some of these kind of um, Tropes that we have about, about war and who p- does what during war are not necess- don't necessarily bear out when you look at the, the facts on the ground. But just as war is gendered, peace building is also gendered. And peace building also recreates gender in its own ways. And it also reflects a certain set of power relations um, that's also shaped by, by intersectionality, by class, by ethnicity, race, and other differences. Um, And as in conflict, women and men are constrained by socialization and social expectations of their roles in peace building. Uh, Women are marginalized from certain aspects of peace building when the formal avenues are closed to them, and then they are forced into pursuing primarily informal means. But then there are also times when women can play a larger public role than men because they are less likely to be targeted. Um, And this then also is shaped by gendered perceptions that women are less dangerous. Um, also, in, in, when I think back, to, I did some research in Liberia right after the war th- there and um, many of the men told me that they had to go into hiding and stay in their homes um, during the war because they would otherwise be targeted by militia who would then capture them to fight um, or, they would, you know, be, or be, they would be suspected for, as, as being the enemy and would be killed. And so they had to stay in the homes, but it was the women that could go out and demonstrate and participate in the, in the peace marches. So essentialist understandings of gender often shape what types of peace-building activities are open to men and women. And this then um, so for example, we see a preponderance of men, males in peacekeeping forces and peace talks, women relegated to the informal peace-building activities and to the margins of peacebuilding. Males are seen as quote protectors of vulnerable women, end quote. Um, and then There are consequences to these. For example, uh, males and females are treated differently in post-conflict disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration processes. So, in the Liberian, going back to the Liberian context again, not fully accounting for women fighters meant that the DDR, the disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration programs, didn't always adequately respond to the needs of women fighters after the war, um, especially those that were involved in cooking or caring. Things they were not involved in combat roles always, but they were nevertheless involved with the militia, and yet they didn't get the same um, packages and support after the war that the other that the fighters did. Um, so, um, so these are just you know some of the some of the concerns that um, one has that th- that one finds. Um, another critique that's out there that comes from the feminist security literature is that there's a kind of a essentialist link that's drawn between women and peace or in peace building um, that somehow women are naturally have some natural affinity to peacemaking. Um, and I think that one maybe wants to move away from some of these kind of simplistic assumptions that that these innate qualities are are the key to peace um, sometimes politicians will play on them but and but um, and the critique of these tropes is not new, um, but the persistence of these frames continues to capture the popular ima- imagination. And you see this again in the in documents of the, the UN and so on. Um, and they don't fully account for women's roles in promoting um, and participating in war or the men's roles in promoting peace. Uh, and uh, So. Um, th- I mean, I think that perhaps the dilemma is really that women are involved. You know, I guess, yeah, the the problem with all this is that women are, in fact, involved in peace building, but not because of these innate, (laughs) you know, nurturing and peace loving um, uh, uh, capacities, but more because of divisions of labor in the household and socialization that put them in charge of care work, and this then gives them a different sensibility about what needs to be done. Um, and helps women find common ground. So it's not this kind of essentialist (laughs) understanding of women's um, nature that um, leads to women's involvement in peace building, but rather um, the fact that the division of labor in the household pushes them into certain kinds of activities and and realizations and concerns. So to get to some of the examples um, that I might just highlight, I can't get into all of them, But just to to give you a sense of of what's going on in terms of these informal strategies that women are involved in, from Uganda to Liberia and Somalia, women activists have pressed for a role um, for women representatives in peace talks, in constitution-making processes, and newly constituted political arrangements. Um, Because it's in the news, we, we we can talk about what's happening in Sudan. Um, women have, were in the forefront, have been in the forefront of the revolution that overthrew Sudan's dictator, Omar al-Bashir, in 2019. Um, they did make some small gains in getting involved in the transitioning government, but the marginalization of women during the negotiations between the Transitional Military Council and the Revolutionary Forces was a real problem. And until the military coup that reclaimed power in 2021 by those in the military, Um, They, throughout those negotiations, they sidelined women's participation. Uh, The internationally facilitated negotiations remained more or less exclusively between armed groups, and women, um, internally displaced persons, Mm -hmm. civil society, um, were not part of, and those people who were not part of the armed rebel movement were almost entirely excluded. Uh, these negotiations were so focused on getting concessions and splitting power between armed groups to reach a signed peace agreement that despite paying lip service to the need for inclusivity and sustainable peace, the international actors um, lost sight of this longer term goal. Also within Sudan, I mean, the non-Islamist political parties and unions justified the exclusion of women by referring to Sudan's conservative culture um, as well as women's lack of political experience and silly arguments about women's so-called emotional biological nature. Again, you know the essentialist arguments. Uh, so women were pushed to the sidelines, um, while the generals, who are now fighting between themselves in a civil war, asserted themselves. Mon- men with guns dominated the transition process, and a military coup resulted, counter-coup, counter-revolution. Um, but women have continued to mobilize online, offline, and initiating their own campaigns. Um, there have been a whole group of young feminists who have emerged in, in this process um, and, in, under th- in groups like the Noon movement, um, Maidanik, feminist gathering in, uh, in um, Jadaref, Feminist Forum in Kasala, and so on, many groups that are raising awareness around sexual violence and offering support to victims. Um, but this. This this lack of inclusion of civil society and and women led commentators like this um, former official in the Transitional Civilian Administration to point out um, that diplomats were actually fostering a political process that increased the polarization and lust for power between armed factions to the extent that it exploded. You cannot bring democracy by exclusion. We saw this too many times in Africa. It's about including including demands um, of the normal people in the streets. The same point has been made by, like we, we heard from Momoka Maki, but it's been the same point has been made by um, activists like Phil Abdi, um, who was former Minister of Women and Children and Youth um, in Ethiopia, um, who now heads the War and Peace Institute, highlighting the problem of excluding women. Um, and she's argued that this, the Tigray War, which is the world's most hidden conflict, receiving very little international attention, Um, The number of civilian deaths has been estimated at 600,000, which exceeds the Ukraine war in lethality. Millions have been forced to flee their homes, and more than half of them women and children. Uh, She herself was involved earlier, she's from the Somali community, she was involved in um, some earlier peace building activities between the Oromo and Somali communities in 2018, when there were clashes between these communities. And the one lesson she, she drew from that was that the fact that women were involved in those talks and, um, really led to, um, was, was a striking example of women's potential and the capacity of women to um, play a really positive role in negotiations. And so she's saying that women have to be part, don't you know? do what Sudan did, women have to be part of the, the negotiations that are going on in, in Tigray. So what have women done? <laughs> Women's organizations um, have been involved in a wide variety of strategies um, to influence talks, to advance a women's rights agenda in peace negotiations, sometimes with mixed results. Um, They sought observer status for women um, when they failed to become negotiators. Um, But of course, if you're you're just an observer role, it means you have limited influence. They've been involved in um, parallel peace conferences, rallies, um, other events to draw attention to women's de- demands um, during peace processes. They've worked behind the scenes through informal initiatives and sought to influence negotiations from the outside. We saw this in the, in the Accra negotiations in 2003 for, for around Liberia and the ways in which the women refugees that were on the outside of the talks were influencing and, and um, collaborating with some of the women who were inside the talks. Um, There have been informal and localized strategies involving rallies and boycotts, promoting small arms confiscation, um, conducting reconciliation ceremonies, negotiating with small groups of rebels um, to disarm, negotiating with rebels to release abducted children and soldiers, which we saw in in the case of Somalia, Uganda, northern Nigeria, and elsewhere. Uh, We've seen. Activist, women activists pressing to hold peace talks and, and a rapid conclusion to peace talks when they were um, lagging, as in, as in the Liberian case in 2003. Sometimes they demanded the holding of elections. Sometimes they've, in the Mozambican case, earlier in 1994, they, they pushed to keep the militia from being involved in the election process. Um, sometimes they asked for the delay of elections until soldiers were fully demobilized. So you know, it depends on the context, um, but anyway, the the point is that women have been you know very very active in in a wide range of activities um, the, at the informal level. In South Sudan, um, you have groups like um, the South Sudan Women's Coalition, a f- group of 50 organizations that have been pushing um, to bridge many of the, the differences within the country, and uh, one of the interesting things about some of this mobilization is that they often take um, bridging of these differences as the starting point rather than at the, as an end point, which is often the goal of, of many peace negotiations. But for women, often it's the starting point because they have built these bridges across um, their differences. Uh, in there, are co- there, are co- there are still ongoing conflicts between um, agriculturalists and pastoralists over grazing land Um, in South Sudan, um, and they've been going on for a long time. But um, as a result, women activists organized, for example, a Boer Reconciliation and Healing Dialogue in 2014, which was the first peace conference since 2013, supported by um, local churches and UNDP and UN Mission in South Sudan. Um, In Boer Town, the Jongle Women's Association organized a women's friendly space for women across ethnic lines to organize activities Talk about their concerns regarding peace, conflict, economic opportunity, and ways to po- peacefully coexist. Um, they focused. They they came across these different religious, ethnic, political identities to focus on common gender-based demands. Uh, and um, yeah, and so the, uh, the South Sudan Women's Coalition for Peace. This coalition of 50 organizations also brings together people a variety of. Um, women from all different walks of life: artisans, environmentalists, lawyers, media women, and so on. Um, and the, the breadth of the, these groups is really quite remarkable. Uh, I think I'm, I'm running out of time here, so maybe I'll skip a few of my examples. But anyway, they're they're all very, I mean, they're all very very interesting. Um, again, in Mali, another uh, another. Uh, organization of 76 women's organizations from different ethnic groups and communities established this Casa de la Paix to help women talk about, you know, come together, talk about peace and social cohesion and their common demands around local ceasefire, demands around women's representation in government and, uh, and so it, it resulted actually in a lot of, in, in a number of women being elected to local councils. Uh, I think many of us know that the Chibok um, case in northern Nigeria, in Madaguri, where um, local women's organizations have negotiated with state security and vigilante groups to let their kidnapped children return, get returned by Boko Haram. Um, They provided information about the activities of Boko Haram in collaboration with state security and vigilante groups. They've made efforts to bring repenting Boko Haram representatives and the government together to the negotiating table. They formed uh, groups that advocated for peace uh, in the local communities, organized rallies for peace, uh, built community support for pregnant women and children whose husbands and fathers were members of Boko Haram, and organized to provide foster care for unaccompanied children whose parents were either killed or missing. Uh, So, you know, again, and I think the remarkable feature about these, um, especially these Boko Haram activities, was that they, in many cases, there were coalitions, for example, in Borno that brought Christian and and Muslim women together. Um, And uh, many, many networks of market women's associations, civil society organizations that um, carried out this kind of interfaith activity. Um, Women in Faith Peace Building Network was another movement of over 10,000 Christian and Muslim women that was started in 2011 um, that organized, again, marches and protests and so on um, to uh, deal with the the abductions and the situation with Boko Haram in in northern Nigeria. To be sure, there are tensions between in, in this mobilization but it's really been an enduring feature of um, of mobilization, and we've seen this in so many contexts. Um, I can't get into the Liberia example, but again, that was another case where you saw um, a bridging of um, ethnic and and religious differences that really resulted in the in these coalitions that brought an end to the war there. Perhaps it's because the category of women um, intersects with um, with almost all other differences, that it, it's perhaps that's why it's easier to, for women to build these kinds of alliances across varied identities. Uh, women women represent um, different groups and different interests, from you know, single-headed households, IDP I- internally displaced people, disabled women, and so on. And this wide variety of interests and concerns are brought together, brought together, um, brought to bear. Um, uh, and uh, in in these strategies, uh, women share common gendered experiences during conflict that have to do with sexual violence, displacement from land, the difficulty in being represented in peace negotiations, um, gaining political representation after conflict. You know, all of these then result in common grievances, regardless of what ethnicity you are, regardless of your class, regardless of your um, you know religion. I mean, th- these these common grievances cut across um, cut across all of society and then have helped build um, alliances across major socia- social divisions. Also political power doesn't map onto gender in the same way that it maps onto class or ethnicity or um, caste and, um, or clan and, and religion. Um, and so gender in fact is what perhaps the only identity that consistently cuts through all of society I mean, I may be wrong about that, but that's that's my understanding of why. Because I keep asking, you know, why is it that it's women that are able to build these bridges and so consistently? From pretty much every case that I've looked at, I see these kinds of alliances. I mean, they're not unproblematic, but they're there. And so uh, my question is, you know, why is it that women can do this? And and I think it has to do with the the nature of the, the gender identity that allows for that. Um, if you look, for example, at um, the, just the, the constitutions that came out of these post-conflict countries you can see that overall there are far more provisions that have to do with um, that were adopted around women's rights in post-conflict countries than countries that hadn't come out of major conflict and again this provides some clue as to you know what are the issues that are uniting women um, and again you see the the importance of um, There's not that much difference when it comes to just general equality clauses or anti-discrimination clauses, but when it comes to representation, there's three times more um, provisions for quotas or some kind of representation in parliament in these um, post-conflict countries. When it comes to um, violence against women, you can see the difference there. When it comes to land, which becomes you know a source of insecurity, again you see that the, a, a big difference between the, the post-conflict and the non-post-conflict countries. So this is the common cause that I'm talking about that that women are able to forge um, in these um, po- uh, conflict, post-conflict countries. The other um, kind of feature that one sees is that. Um, Women are also building bridges around what we might call quotidian concerns, in other words, daily concerns. Um, And again, part of this has to do with the division of labor and the way that women are socialized. It often leaves women with the responsibility of caring for the children and the sick and the elderly. I mean, they just don't have any choice. And in war, they they have to deal with it somehow. And so they have the responsibility to maintain that household economy and get water to the family and get water to the kids and to the elderly and the sick. They have to maintain security. They have to find firewood, and and other necessities. And so they're very focused on these these very you know basic concerns. Um, and again, this brings them together, and this brings them together across differences. And I can point to many examples of how women have collaborated across differences, um, in order to meet these daily needs. Um, so, um, I'm going to just. <laughs> um, be we're getting running out of time here so i'm just going to um, jump perhaps to the end no 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 oh, we your not time oh because the is on her, oh okay on <laughs> well in that case <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you <laughs> no um, well okay well i mean then, you know, we, there there have been a lot of i don't i don't want to go into great detail on this but just to to point out that there have been you know we, we've jumped from different strategy to strategy um, internationally, um, in the U.S., for example, you know we've gone from stabilization and counterterrorism strategies to preventing and countering violent extremism, and now you know UN and U.S. Bi- the Biden administration is focusing more on these kind of humanitarian concerns. They've moved away a little bit from the. the, the shifting gradually from the counterterrorism to to that the Trump advocated, to now more humanitarian and less focus on military solutions. And you can see that in the recent um, UN you know, areas of peacekeeping that they want to focus on. Um, and they're um, you know clearly number two, women, peace and security, they've moved, they've bumped that up. Um, and peace building and sustainable peace, number six there. So and then when you look at when you go back and, and look more carefully what they're saying, they want to talk they're talking about the role of civil society, inclusion, local population, get them into peace. Keeping and so on, so there's this, you know a shift in the emphasis and you know less in, less interest in drones and that kind of thing, and more on you know how to get buy-in from the local communities. But the problem still for me <laughs> is that you know where are the women in all of this? Even even at even the UN, where they put women peace and security, they're still talking about it primarily at the national level, and only I mean, which is again, I'm not a, saying you shouldn't do that, but just that it can't only be that; it has to also be at the community level. And so somehow bringing women into the focus um, has to be part of the discussion. You know, Women and women at the table at all levels, national, local, um, if, if, this new, if this strategy on inclusion is gonna work, that women have to be brought to the table and, um, and, and those people who are actually building peace, not the ones who wanna talk about peace, but the ones who are doing it, they have to be consulted. Um, and so, you know, we were t- 23 years out of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 being adopted, and this resolution underscored the importance of the role of women in the prevention and resolution of conflicts and called for their equal participation in peace building. But the progress has been underwhelming <laughs> since that time. And so, just as conflict is gendered, so is peace building. Uh, women still are excluded from formal processes. They're pushed to the sidelines, relegated to informal local level strategies. Um, not only are they grossly underrepresented as peacekeepers in peace negotiations and other aspects of peace building, but the peace building activities they engage in are often ignored. So when they do get involved, you know they, 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 they are not taken seriously. Um, and so women's peace building initiatives, both formal and informal, national and local need to be accounted for and incorporated into a broadened definition of peace building. Um, Their inclusion is important because it's a step towards gender equality. Um, Including women's organizations and activists helps ensure a more lasting peace and helps break the cycle of violence. Women are coming together across class, ethnic, religious and political differences to build coalitions around common grievances that have to do with violence and sexual violence, access to land, and political power. They have um, insisted that the conditions that have given rise to conflict must be directly addressed, such as um, corruption and impunity, as we heard this morning in the cases of South Sudan and Ethiopia. Um, Women activists can make these demands um, as they have much less at stake than male leaders in preserving the status quo. They have little to lose. And far from seeing themselves only as victims, local women activists often come together around these daily concerns that have to do with accessing food, water, and shelter. Who better to have at the table than those who know the local dynamics? Who better to bring to formal reconciliation processes than those who already have succeeded in building bridges and know how to do it? Thank you.
0: That's all for today's episode. I hope you learned as much as I did about the vital role of women in peace building after conflict. And next time UMBC hosts a conference, you should register. I guarantee that a few days in a context like this one will spark plenty of opportunities to keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Malinson. Our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno. And our production intern is Alex Andrews. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent CS3 events. Until next time, keep questioning.